You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. in uh, the middle of the series that we have entitled Resilient. And uh, the whole idea behind this series is that we want to be a people who uh, not only survive, but can thrive in the midst of extreme and harsh conditions like the one that we are living in. And so our hope is that as a church, uh, more than we want to be uh, just, you know, filled with a whole bunch of people on a Sunday morning, which is always great to see when you have a good crowd on a Sunday morning. But more than that, uh, we want to be a church filled with resilient disciples, with men and women who are able to bear fruit no matter what conditions we are in so that people can taste and see how good God really is. And um, what we are discovering is that to become a church filled with resilient disciples is actually an uphill battle. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we are currently living in a time period where it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find resilient disciples. According to, uh, in fact, uh, Barner Research, which I think we can put the stats on the screen for you, um, they actually polled a group of people between the ages of 18 to 29 years of age who grew up in the church. And what they discovered is that 22% of those uh, were prodigals, meaning they have completely not only left the church, but abandoned the faith. Uh, 33% of those 18 to 29 year olds who grew up in the church are what they called nomads. These are people who uh, would say they are Christians, but they're not really practicing the way of Jesus. Uh, 35% are habitual churchgoers. Those are people who just show up, kind of go through the motions, check the box, um, but are not being transformed in any way, shape, or form. And then resilient disciples, there are only 10% of what they identified as resilient disciples in the church today between the ages of 18 to 29. And a resilient disciple for them is someone who is being transformed and transforming the world around them. What I want you to know is as a church, we're going after that 10%, um, and we actually want to grow beyond 10%. How great would it be if it was more like at least 50% or 60 or, or 90 or even 100% of the people who are part of this church were those that would identify with resilient disciples. And and what we've basically uh, discovered is that, man, to be a resilient disciple is right now, at the least, to be in the minority. So you need to know that. If you want to go after this, the stuff we're talking about, uh, you need to know like the majority of people in this room are not going to go after that, according to the statistics. Does that make sense? So you need to know you're going to be somewhat of an odd duck if you do what we're actually hoping you will do from this series. Like this is not uh, going to be a popular way of living. This is not going to be an easy way of living to use the words of Jesus himself. This is the narrow path. But here's the promise. If you will hop on this path, if you will be willing to take a risk, if you will step out and be okay with not necessarily being in the in crowd, but being in the minority, Jesus says, if you'll stay on the path in the end, you will experience life and life to the fullest, which is what we are all after, right? So um, the question we've been asking in the series is what exactly is a resilient disciple? And what we have said so far in week one is that to be a resilient disciple is to practice the way of Jesus. That means that if you want to know what a disciple is, here's the definition. You ready? A disciple is someone who is reorienting their entire life around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. That's what it means to practice the way of Jesus. In the second week, we said to be a resilient disciple, you have to be someone who is rooted in the scriptures. And then last week, we said you need to be someone who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this week, as we continue, what I want you to understand is that if you are going to be a resilient disciple of Jesus, you must fourthly be someone who is given to compassionate 
mission. And when we talk about compassionate mission, what we are talking about is someone who has a heart that is broken for and moving towards the lost sheep. I think back to that passage that Luke read earlier from Luke 15, where Jesus is being blasted by the religious leaders of the day. And they're saying, Jesus, why do you hang out with sinners? Why do you welcome these these people who are far from God into your home and actually eat with them? And Jesus says, that's a good question. Let me tell you a story. And anytime you read the Bible where Jesus is about to tell the story, you know the religious leaders are in trouble. So he's about to drop one on them. So he says, let me tell you a parable. And here's what he says. Imagine there is a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. If he is a good shepherd, will he not leave the 99 and go and pursue the one lost sheep? And then he says, if he's a good shepherd and he finds the one lost sheep, what's going to happen? He says he's going to rejoice. And not only is he going to rejoice, he's going to call his friends and he's going to call his family and he's going to call his neighbors and he's going to say, let's all rejoice together because my lost sheep, right? It was lost, but now it is found. And then Jesus drops the bomb on the religious leaders in verse seven of chapter 15. And he says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing more rejoicing over the one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous people who do not think they need to repent. This is the heartbeat of God. It is this, this, this heart that says, I want to go after the one lost sheep. And what we need to understand today is that if we're going to be a church that therefore has the heart of God, the same has to be true of us. Our posture must be one that says that we are, like Jesus, going to go after those who are lost. And so rather than us being a church that is inward focused, rather than us being given to introspective spirituality, rather than us showing up and saying, you know, I really think the church is just about me being healthy, which by the way, I'm for. I hope you know what our pastors were for. We want you to be physically healthy. We want you to be emotionally healthy and relationally healthy, right? Spiritually healthy. But please hear me. The whole point of church is not just your own personal well-being. You understand that? The whole point of church is not just for you to be a, a healthy individual, but the point is for you to be healthy so that you can give witness to what God is like. So that you can, through your lips and your life, testify to the fact that Jesus really is alive. He did get out of the grave and now lives in you through his Holy Spirit. That is the point. The point of the church is that we would be salt and light in the community around us. That we would be like salt, that we would, we would keep things from decaying, that we would preserve what is good, and that we would shine the light of Christ into the darkest places of our city so the people who are lost can find their ways to God. This is always the direction that Jesus is moving towards. He's always moving towards the lost, towards the hurting, towards the vulnerable, towards those who are on the margin of society. And what I want you to understand today is anytime there is a movement towards something, there is a movement away from something. Does that make sense? When you move towards something, you are moving away from something else. And so what I want you to understand today is that if we are going to be a church that moves towards the loss, we're going to be moving away from what's comfortable. We're going to be moving away from what's conventional. We're going to be moving away from what is familiar. We're going to be moving away from what is safe and secure and neat and tidy. And if you doubt that, just look at Christ. Our whole faith is built on this idea that Jesus left a perfect place in heaven and he came to this earth. And when he came to this earth, he wasn't born into a palace, but into poverty. 
He was born the son of a carpenter, which by the way, in the first century was the bottom of the towing pole on the social ladder. And so to be clear, to be a church that is committed to compassionate mission, this is not convenient, this is not comfortable, this is not conventional, but here's the thing, this is, I promise you, what you want to give your life to. Do you realize today you are on a mission? Did you realize that? Everybody in here has a a mission statement over your life. For some people, maybe your mission is to to get married and have 2.5 kids and a golden retriever. I don't know. Or or a golden doodle. That's probably more likely, right? Golden doodle fans all around this this church. Everybody's getting a golden doodle these days. And so, or or maybe your mission is to graduate or, or to make a lot of money or to have really successful kids or just try to keep your kids alive or or to not kill your kids, right? Like your mission is, is to, to be a success, to be great, to make a lot of money. We all have a mission. And I'm telling you right now, when it comes to the end of your life, as a man who has been around dying people, nobody says, I wish I would have just made more money. Nobody says, I wish I would have given my life to just going on one more vacation. What people want to give their lives to is what we're talking about right now. This is a life well lived. If you want to have a life, when you want to come to the end of it, you want to box it all up and you don't want to have wasted written across the top of it, this is what you want to give yourself to. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about today. And so just to help you understand how committed Jesus is to compassionate mission, because I know that whenever I give a sermon like this, we all tend to want to make excuses for why not us. We all want to talk about all the barriers and the obstacles that keep us from living this way. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to think about this story from John 4. It's actually one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And I want you to notice all of the barriers that Jesus himself was willing to break down in order to reach the one lost sheep. And the first barrier, if you think back to the story that Heather read, that Jesus is willing to break to reach the one lost sheep is the gender barrier. Now, to us in 2020, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But what you have to understand is that in the first century, for a man, think about this, for a man to approach a woman in broad daylight was unheard of. Especially if that man was a rabbi like Jesus. This is why in verse 9, whenever Jesus actually speaks to the woman, she's shocked. Do you notice that? She says, why are you a man talking to me, a woman? Right? Why are you a Jew speaking to me? As they, I mean, she is shocked. And not only is she shocked, but in verse 29, the disciples are just surprised. That's why they show up and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Like, what if people look and they see you speaking to this woman? Like, like, don't you care about what other people are going to say? Like, aren't you worried about what your reputation will be if you, a man, are speaking to a woman in broad daylight? And what does Jesus say? Basically, I don't care. I don't care what other people say. I don't care what the culture thinks of me. This woman is a lost sheep, and therefore I am running after her. So Jesus breaks the gender barrier. The second thing we see is he breaks the the racial and religious barrier. You may not have known this, but the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other in the first century. And here's how much they hated each other. I think I can show this with a map. Do we have that map? There it is. This might be kind of hard for some of you to read in the back. But if you were like Jesus, if you're a Jew and you want to travel from Judea up to Galilee, you would never go straight through Samaria. 
you would literally, if you notice that dotted line, go out of your way just to not go through Samaria. You would cross the Jordan River. Think about this. Cross the Jordan River, head north, cross the Jordan River again, and then eventually make your way up to Galilee. You would completely go out of your way just to avoid these people. Like, that's how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. And why did the Jews hate the Samaritans? And why did the Samaritans hate the Jews? Well, in short, this is a little quick history lesson for you. In 722 BC, the, the kingdom of Israel had been split in half. You have the northern kingdom, which is where Samaria is, the southern kingdom where you see Judea. And what happened is in 722 BC, the Assyrians move into the northern kingdom, they destroy everything, and they exile the people of the northern kingdom out of their land. Now, eventually the northern kingdom is able to come back to the land. But by the time they get back, the wicked Canaanites have been all established in that area. God commands them, don't intermarry with them. They're wicked people. They're going to bring you down. They're going to corrupt you. But what do the Israelites do? They intermarry with the Canaanites. So they take on their culture. They take on their practices. They become like what Jews think are basically these half-breeds. They also take on their, their practices of worship, and eventually they build a temple in the northern kingdom at Mount Gerizim, and they basically been, begin to proclaim that actually the one true God is here at this temple. Now, the southern kingdom didn't like this too much, because they believed the one true God was at their temple. So what does the southern kingdom do? They move up north, and they destroy the northern kingdom's temple. So there's a lot of hatred between these two. And by the time you come to the first century, the tension between them is locked and it is loaded. You know, the tension is like crazy today between Republicans and Democrats and all that. Like it is 10 times that. Jesus walks on the scene in the middle of this tension. And what does he do? He goes out of his way, actually not to do the right thing, which is what most used to say, which is go around. He says, no, 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 I'm going to do the uncomfortable thing. I'm going to go straight towards this Samaritan woman. He moves towards her. He breaks down this barrier. And if that's not crazy enough, what is the conversation that takes place between these two people? You're talking about an awkward conversation. I've been a few of awkward conversations. This is about as awkward as it gets. What does Jesus talk to this woman about? About the temple. About where's the one true God at? That's like the one thing you shouldn't be talking about, right? And what does Jesus say to her? Basically, in verse 23, he says, you know, the one true God, he actually doesn't dwell in the temple in the northern kingdom. He says, but you need to know something. He also doesn't dwell in the temple in the southern kingdom. There's actually a new temple. There's a new place where heaven and earth meet, a new place where living water flows. And what Jesus says to her is that place is now found in me. I am the new temple. I am, Jesus says, the place where heaven and earth now meet. I am God embodied. I am the place where living water flows. And this is why in verse 13, he says, drink from me and you'll never thirst again. And so Jesus, he breaks down the gender barrier. He breaks down the, the racial and religious barrier. He also, and this one's the most outrageous, he breaks the social barrier. This Samaritan woman is an outcast. And we know this because she is going to the well all alone at the hottest part of the day. Nobody would do this, historians tell us. It's dangerous to do this. Women would always travel to the well in a crowd because there's safety in numbers. But this woman could not do this. And the reason she couldn't do this is because other people hated her. And you know why they hated her? Because of her past because she was considered a big screw-up. 
She had five failed marriages, and she's now living with a man who's not her husband. So she is a lawbreaker, and in this culture, you know what it means to be a lawbreaker? It means you're ceremonially unclean. You're disgusting. I don't even want to be around you if you're ceremonial unclean because your sin could get on me. You could defile me. And so nobody wanted to be around this woman. She's a complete and utter outcast. Everybody hates her. Everybody except for Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He moves right towards her. And I want you to just think about this. Because it's so easy, even right now, maybe as I'm telling this story, like you're like, I'm in 2020, you kind of totally remove yourself from the situation. But just think about this for a second. If you are a first century Jew, who is the furthest person in your mind from God? Who is the one person that if you were to put your money on it, you would say, I know God hates this person. Do you know who it is? It's a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman who also has a reputation of being a serial adulterer. That's the person in your mind that you are absolutely sure that God must hate. And yet, what does Jesus say about this woman? He says, actually, actually, the person who's furthest from me in your mindset is the person I care about the most. The person that the world despises is a person I take delight in, so I'm making a beeline for this woman. And I just want to say this. How do you know if your heart is getting close to the heart of God? You will, like Jesus, move towards the last and the least and the loss of society. That's how you can tell when your heart is starting to line up with his. Has anybody in here ever seen the movie Lion? Raise your hand. Anybody? Has anybody seen this movie? Is it not an incredible movie? Probably one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um... This is based on, for those who didn't raise your hand, this is your Sunday afternoon. Trust me. It's $3.99 on Amazon Prime. Uh, or if you have kids, wait and put them down the night and watch it tonight. This movie is based on a true story about an Indian kid named Saru, which you see in this picture kind of uh, played by this gentleman. Um, whenever Saru was four years old, he got separated from his mom and his brother. He was at a cha- train station with his brother. His brother said, stay here. His brother was like eight or something like that. Stay here. I'll come back and get you. He walks away, and Saru, as a four-year-old, walks off, gets like walks on a train, and then the train takes off without knowing Saru is on there and carries him a thousand miles away from home. He gets off the train station two days or off the train two days later. He has no identity. He's four years old, so the only thing he knows about his mom is her name is Mom. He doesn't know where he's from. Nobody knows anything about this. This is a true story. No one knows anything about this four-year-old kid. He wanders the street for about a, a week and survives just eating scraps out of out of garbage cans, things like that. Eventually, a family from Australia. He goes into the uh, like a, you know the, uh, the system. A family from Australia adopts him. He moves to Australia, has a pretty decent life, but for twenty-five years. All he can think about are images of his mother's face. He would tell people, my mom was so beautiful. I can still hear her. And he would, he would say at night, he would have these nightmares, like his mom or brother calling out to him. Saru, Saru. So for 25 years, he can't stop thinking about them. And so one day he's at a university in Australia and a girl comes up to him in 2008 and says, hey, have you heard about this thing called Google Earth? It's a software where basically you can see images from anywhere all over the world. She says, maybe you can get on Google Earth. You can look at images from kind of where you think you might be from. Maybe that'll spark a memory. You can go there and see if your mom's still alive. So you know what he does? For nine hours a day for the next three years, he gets on Google Earth 
and he searches for images that will spark memories. Nine hours a day, three years. That's like, what, 10,000 hours, 11, 12, I don't know. how. That's a lot of hours. He gets on there. Eventually, he finds this train station. And by the train station, there's a water tower. And he says, me and my brother used to play at that water tower. And then all of a sudden, he sees a dirt road that comes from the water. And he's like, I remember, I remember as a four-year-old walking on that dirt road. And so he's following it on Google Earth. Eventually, the true story again, comes to a village. He's like, I think that's where I grew up. So he, he, he kind of, you know, zooms in on the village. Eventually, he's like, I think that's my exact house. And so he gets on a plane. He flies to Calcutta, gets to Calcutta. He travels a 1,000 miles to this village. He goes to the water tower. He walks down the dirt road. He gets to this village. And if you haven't seen this, spoiler alert, this does kind of ruin it for you a little bit. Um, but um, he finds his mom. True story. He embraces her. We have a picture, I think, of him and his mom. Yeah, there's the real... Saru. And they're crying. And then me and my wife are just weeping, man. I'm like trying to, I'm like, I'm not crying. You're crying, right? It's like, I mean, I'm crying, man, because I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. And I'm like, that's the heart of God. Like, that's it. Saru is like, I, I, I've got to get back to this person that I love. I've got to pursue her. I've got to track her down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work 10, 11, 12, 13,000 hours. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly thousands of miles and walk all these miles. Why? Because listen, when you lose something of incredible value, you will do whatever it takes to recover that thing. And guys, that's the point of the gospel. Like that's what Jesus did for you and me. Jesus left heaven and came to earth because of you were such value to him that he wanted to pull you back into a relationship with God. The sacrifice that Saru made was great, but it's nothing compared to the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life. You could not live on your behalf. He went to the cross. He suffered a brutal death that we all deserve to die for our sin so that rather than getting death, we can get life. So that we can all, no matter who you are or what you are done or how wicked or defiled you think you may be, so that now we all can experience the loving embrace of the Father. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And what I want you to understand today, man, if you have received this gospel, this good news, what Jesus has done for you, he now wants to do in you. I'm going to say that again. What Jesus has done for you, if you claim that he just did this for you, what he has done for you, he wants to do in you. Which means we must be a people who go after the lost. We must be a people who say, I'll do whatever it takes to reach those who are far from God. That is our mission. That is why we exist. Before we end this morning, with all that being said, I want to make sure that before we go out of here on mission, that we do this with the right heart posture. And so let me just share with you very quickly four reasons for why we should all be moved to compassionate mission today. Four motivations for why we should give our lives for this. And the first thing I would just say is this, is that if we are going to be a people of compassionate mission, we need to be moved by joy. By joy. Guys, this is not about duty. This is not about, well, the pastor got up and gave one of those go and die speeches, and I guess if I'm going to be a good Christian, I should go and do it. If that's your posture, man, you need to meditate all over again on what Christ has done for you. Do you realize the Bible says in Hebrews, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus Christ endured the cross. 
What was the joy set before him? What was the one thing that Jesus had to leave heaven and come to earth in order to get? You know what that is? It's you. It's you. Oh, it's worship, Jared. No, he had worship perfectly in heaven. I promise you that. It's glory. I, is, I promise you his glory was just fine in heaven. He left heaven and came to earth for the joy that was set before him. And you are that joy. And whenever you begin to believe that with great joy, then you go out so that others can experience what you have experienced. So we need to be, if we're going to be people of compassion and mission, we need to be moved by joy. Secondly, we need to be moved by love. I actually found this very interesting this week. You might think it's very boring. If so, I apologize. We're getting close to being done. So um, there is that. But I never thought about this before. In John chapter 3... Uh, John the Baptist's ministry is blowing up. It's going really well. People are coming from miles to be around John the Baptist. And he basically says to them, hey, don't get too excited about me. Like, I'm just the warm-up act. Like, you think this is something. Like, there's a bridegroom that is coming. He's talking about a bridegroom. And you're like, bridegroom? Okay, it's like going to be like a wedding? Here's what's interesting. So you're thinking, okay, bridegroom, wedding, what's happening? You get over to John chapter 4, and bam, all of a sudden there's a scene at the well. Now, to you and me, like, okay, what does that mean? But to a first century Jew, the well played a very significant role. Do you know why? Because whenever you read Jewish history, a majority or a lot of their, their patriarchs of the faith, they all met their lovers at a well. And so, you know, for example, um, think about this. Where did Isaac meet Rebekah? They met at a what? Well, by the way, the next few questions I'm going to ask, the answer is always going to be well. That I'm going to set you up, okay? So... Isaac met Rebecca at a well. Jacob met Rachel, where at? At a well. Moses met his wife, where at? At a well. All right, yeah. And so when all of a sudden you hear about a bridegroom that is coming in John 3, and then all of a sudden you turn to John 4 and there's a well, you're like, ah, there's going to be a wedding. And in a very real sense, there is a wedding. And it's not between just Jesus and this woman. But it's a picture of the wedding between God and humans. It's a picture of a wedding where Jesus says, Now I am making union with God available again. Now I am coming and I am giving you a chance to have a relationship with the one who created you. Do you know what this woman was searching for? She was searching for love. You don't have five failed marriages and not be searching for love. She's living with a man right now. He's not even her husband because she's searching for love. And Jesus steps onto the scene. He goes, I know what you're looking for. I know exactly what you're looking for. You're looking for love, and it's found in me. I am the fulfillment of every single one of your longings. I just want to stop right here and ask you this question. Do you believe what I just said? Do you believe that the love that you are searching for is found in Jesus? That the fulfillment of every one of your longings is found in him? Do you realize, according to the scriptures, every single romantic drive and longing for intimacy and sexual fulfillment, do you realize it's all pointing to the person of Jesus? Do you know that? Like, did you know there's not going to be marriage in heaven? Did you know that there's not going to be sex in heaven? Some of you are like, that's it. I'm not going. Like, 
I was on the, the fence trying to decide, but that seals the deal. Like, that seals the deal. No marriage, no sex. Like, I'm out. Like, could it possibly be worth it? Absolutely be worth it. Absolutely, it will be worth it because when we finally fully experience our union, when all of our sin is washed out of us, and as Paul says in Ephesians 5, we are adorned like a bride and all of her radiance before the bridegroom. We will look back at the best marriages and the best sexual experiences we had, and we'll say nothing, nothing compared to the joy and the intimacy and the overwhelming sense of love that I am experiencing right now. Do you imagine how this would change how we view evangelism? If we viewed evangelism like this, I used to be a door-to-door knife salesman. True story. And I would sell knives to people. I didn't own any of the knives myself, but I'd sell you a set for about 1500 bucks. Uh, and I think some of us, we view evangelism like that. We think evangelism is basically, I got to sell people on a product that I really don't even use myself. And what you need to know is, listen, evangelism is not so much about you selling people on ideas to appeal to their rational brain. It's about introducing people to a lover for the sake of giving them the one who alone can satisfy their relational souls. And so we're motivated by love. We're motivated by joy, motivated by love. Third, we're motivated by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 4, verse 4, it says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. No, he didn't. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. We just said, in fact, most Jews didn't go to Samaria, through Samaria. They'd cross the Jordan River. They'd go north. They'd cross the Jordan River. They'd go north a little bit more, and eventually they'd get to Galilee. He didn't have to go. So what, why does John say that? Well, what every scholar agrees on is what they're saying here is Jesus was compelled by the Holy Spirit. He, he had to go because the Holy Spirit was compelling him to go to this woman. And you know what that means? Please hear me today. We're getting close to being done. What that means is that if you are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, you can guarantee you that he will lead you towards the lost. He will always lead you towards the lost sheep. He'll always lead you in searching for those who are looking for love and fulfillment that can only be found in Christ. And by the way, please notice this. This is a little side note, evangelism tip for you today. Notice whenever the Spirit leads Jesus to this woman, what is his opening line? He asked her for help. Think about that. Jesus shows up and he humbles himself and he elevates the woman. He gives her dignity. This woman probably has never spoken to another man in public, especially like a Jewish rabbi. And Jesus not only speaks to her, he asks her for help. He asks her for a drink of water. Now think about this again, guys. This is God in the flesh. He just turned water into wine. He can walk on water. He can raise the dead. He can take a few fish and some bread and feed 5,000. Did he really need to ask this woman for water? Absolutely not. What is he doing? He's restoring her dignity. And what you need to understand today is if we're going to be effective in evangelism, the same must be true of us, guys. Please hear me. We are not the great white saviors showing up on a high horse trying to pull people up to where we are. That is not an effective approach to evangelism. If we want to be like Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves, we get down to where people are, and we begin to try to elevate them as those created in the image of God. That's what we see happening right here with this woman, which then leads to the conversation where she gets to find out that Jesus is the one she's longing for, looking for So we're moved by joy, we're moved by love, we're moved by the Spirit, and finally, and we'll end here, 
We are also to be a people who are moved for the one. As the story unfolds, and Heather read it earlier in verse 39 through 42, Jesus reaches an entire city through this one woman. This is what theologians call the scandal of the particular. And the idea here is that when God wants to accomplish something great, he oftentimes will do it through just one. So God wants to create a nation, the nation of Israel. What does he do? He just chooses one. He chooses Abraham. He says, all right, I want to create a great nation. Who's someone who's over the hill? Who's someone who can't like actually have kids? Abraham, brilliant. Let's choose him. It's a foolish choice on God's part, if you're asking me. But God is constantly all about choosing the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He then decides, I want to bless the nations. So what does he do? Just chooses one nation, just one, the nation of Israel. They're not even a good nation. They're a weak nation. In fact, the whole name of Israel means to struggle. And he says, yeah, that's the nation I'm going to reach the nations through. God wants to redeem all of creation. What does he do? Just chooses one. His own son, Jesus Christ, again, to be born into poverty, to come and through his life, death, and resurrection, redeem creation. So by the time we come to our passage in John 4, what does God do when he wants to reach the city of Sakaar? Just one. Just one. And it's the one you would never, ever expect him to do it through. So how does God want to reach your workplace? How does God want to reach your school? How does God want to reach your house? How does he want to reach your neighborhood? He just wants to do it through the one. And you could be that one. I remember whenever I first started a college ministry, um, every week before people would arrive, I would get down on my knees and I would pray for those who would come up. Me and a guy named Matt Sutton would get together and we'd, we'd pray for the college students to show. Which, by the way, I want to say this. We just started a prayer ministry where you have a group of people who shows up here at 820 and prays for you. I showed up today. It was the first day we did it. You can be a part of this, by the way. I walked into it. The room was full of people who were coming to pray for you at 820 this morning. Isn't that awesome? It's, it's the coolest thing we got going in our church, I can promise you, by a long shot. Uh, so if you want to be a part of that, you should join that. Nothing more important than that. But we would get together before the college students would arrive, and we would get on our knees and pray. And there was a song that I'd play in the background by a band called Sanctus Real. They were the first Christian band I'd ever heard of. And they had this song called Inspiration. And there's a scene in there that would go, uh, you can, I was about to sing it for you, but I don't feel that free yet. Some of you are looking at me like you're ready for me to shut up, so I'm not going to sing it. But there's this line in there that said, you can change the world by changing just one life. And that used to pump me up, man. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Like, I might be that one life, or I'm going to be a part of God using me to change that one life, and they're going to change the world. And as I thought about this past week, I thought, that ain't just a hokey song. That's scripture. That's what we see all throughout the Bible. God can change the world through just one life. Do you realize according to Acts 17, I promise I'm about done, but Acts 17, God has sovereignly placed you where you are to reach people far from God? That means that you, listen to me please carefully, you, with all of your hang-ups and your quirks and your I don't know the Bible very well and all that, you are the best person to reach the people around you by God's design according to Acts 17. I heard a uh, missionary give a talk this past week. He's a missionary in uh, India trying to reach 1.3 billion people with the gospel. And he was talking to his team of six people. And he said to them, hey, if we really got after it this year, how many people do you think we could get the gospel to in India? And his team was like, well, if we really prayed about it, we're really strategic, I bet we could get the gospel to 100,000 people in, in one year. And he's like, yeah, that's, pretty like uh, that's pretty good. Anybody know how long it would take to reach India if you reached 100,000 people a year? 13,000 years. So he's like, we don't have 13,000 years. So he's like, here's my idea. 
How about rather than all six of us go after 100,000, how about we just go after one? And then we pour into them for six months. And then we say after six months, you go get one and you do the same thing. And then the, the cycle repeats. And eventually two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16, 16 becomes 32. You know how long it would take to reach India if they did that? 10 years. 10 years. That's the power of exponential growth. That is the power of the one. So all that to say, this is what we're going after as a church. We're going to leave the 99 and we're going to go after the one. Guys, we cannot make this about us. The church is the only organization in the world that does not exist for itself. We exist for the world. We exist to take the gospel forward. I'm all about us being healthy and whole, but this cannot just become a therapy community where we just show up and say, I need you to help me be less anxious just for the sake of being less anxious. We need to be a people who are moving forward. And if you're like, man, where in the world do I start, Jared? There's so many needs. It's so overwhelming. Where do I begin? You just simply start with the one. Just one. I want to pray for us. Ben, if you will, would you go ahead and come forward? You guys can stand with me. I want to pray for us, and then we will be dismissed. I want to say this, by the way, real fast. To those of you who brought your kids with you, I salute you. My wife has been doing that in the second service. Um, and I know it's not easy. I know it's not always easy to focus on the, the sermon, the teaching. Uh, maybe you even get a little frustrated. And I just want you to know, I think God really smiles at you when he sees you here with your kids. And uh, I think the effort is totally worth it. It does not offend me or anybody else. It doesn't bother me. And so keep bringing your kids um, man, keep up the good work. I was reminded this past week. Um, what time is it, Luke? It is I got, I got, I got about 35 seconds. Uh, I was reminded this past week that, that man raising little kids, I was reading a book, is like one of the most hardest backbreaking works that you can give yourself to. Um, but man, it is totally worth it. And so I want to encourage you guys, keep bringing your kids, keep pouring into them, keep discipling them. Jesus would be welcome them. They want to run through the aisles. That's okay. We need to be a little bit more charismatic in this church anyway. And so they want to go do that. That's all right. So just keep on coming back. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for uh, the time spent with uh, my brothers and my sisters. I love this family. I love that we get to be a part of your mission. Thank you for inviting us into that. I pray for someone who's here right now. Maybe they feel like the woman at the well. Help them to see that uh, you are pursuing them and not with fire in your eyes of anger and hatred and how dare you, but with love in your heart. Uh, you truly uh, desire that none will perish, that all will come to, to saving faith. And I pray, God, that for the person who's here right now who feels furthest from you, that you would use in the greatest way in our church and our city uh, and beyond. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things.